0: Our colleague Sarah Randazzo is a legal reporter, and she's covered a lot of lawsuits against big companies.
1: A lot of times companies get sued over things that they think are bogus or fraudulent or frivolous. And, you know, sometimes they'll fight and they'll oftentimes fight for years. But usually litigation ends, and sometimes it ends with a trial and a verdict. Sometimes it ends with a settlement. But usually corporations will find a way to get out of cases because it's just not worth it to their time or their money to keep fighting.
0: But one case she's been covering seems to never end. It's been going on for 28 years. It's a battle between the oil giant Chevron and indigenous people in Ecuador who claim the company polluted their water and land.
1: This is one case where a company did not stop and still has not stopped. And really, to me, the intrigue of this story is that it's looking at why Chevron refused to stop 28 years in and has no plans of stopping fighting this case until they can ensure that they won't be responsible and won't have to pay anything to the people of Ecuador.
0: Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knutson. It's Thursday, May 6th. Coming up on the show, the never-ending dispute over one of the largest environmental lawsuits ever. This lawsuit doesn't actually start with Chevron. It starts with Texaco, an oil company Chevron acquired in 2001. Texaco, like many American oil companies, drilled for oil around the world. In the 1960s, they set up shop in Ecuador, partnering with the Ecuadorian state-run oil company Petro Ecuador. So starting in the
1: 60s, they began drilling, they built up a community. They named it Lago Agrio, which means Sour Lake, and that was named for Texaco's birthplace in Texas. There's a town called Sour Lake, Texas, that was pivotal in Texaco's history. And so they kind of took that name and named the section of Ecuador Lago Agrio and then explored and extracted oil for a few decades after that.
0: But indigenous Ecuadorians and migrant farmers who live in the region, known as the Ecuadorian Amazon, claimed they'd been damaged by the operation. They filed a lawsuit in 1993 in New York. Some later talked to the BBC. Before, the water was clean. There were fish, there were animals. We had food to eat,
1: yucca and banana, and we were happy living that way. We thought we would live that way forever, but the arrival of Texaco was very bad. When you extract oil, there's a lot of waste and rocks and different things that come out that you have to put somewhere. And so in a lot of places, including the U.S., you have to line the pits in the earth and then you put the waste in there and so then that prevents it from kind of leaching into the earth if that makes sense but in ecuador they say that they had wastewater and oil extraction waste going in unlined pits that they said then you know seeped into the earth and the water supply
2: i am ill i feel like they are the lion and we are the
1: mice We are poor and insignificant to them. And they decided to pursue litigation against Texaco saying, hey, you did all this oil exploration and you polluted our environment. Our drinking water is polluted, our air is polluted, our food is polluted. And so they decided to sue in 1993 in New York.
0: While the suit was playing out in a New York court, Texaco had already left Ecuador and transferred its oil operations to its partner, Petro-Ecuador. Texaco also made a deal with the Ecuadorian government The company agreed to spend $40 million to clean up the area, and the government gave Texaco a liability release, saying that the company wasn't responsible for any damages related to its time there.
1: From their standpoint, they came to an agreement, and they paid $40 million, and they did a bunch of work to clean up various sites, and basically, Texaco was the minority partner in this, and so... They say that they cleaned up the percentage of sites that was their percentage of the partnership. I believe it was something around 37%. They cleaned up the percentage they were responsible for, but that means there were definitely other sites that the Texco did not clean up. But they say that they spent this $40 million, did all this cleanup, and then a few years later, they had an agreement with the government where Ecuador said, "Okay, you fulfilled your terms of the cleanup. We're giving you a waiver. You're not liable for your work here. You know, be on your
0: way. Then, a judge threw out the case in New York and said if the plaintiffs wanted to move forward, they had to file a new case in Ecuador. And so, in 2003, the plaintiffs did just that. One of the lawyers the plaintiffs were working with is an American named Stephen Donziger. Stephen had been involved since the beginning, when he learned about the situation from a classmate at Harvard Law School.
1: He was fluent in Spanish. He had been a foreign correspondent kind of before going to law school. And so he starts to get involved and and looking at this. And so he was involved from the very beginning when they filed the lawsuit and really became the face of the case.
0: With the lawsuit now playing out in Ecuador, Stephen tried to keep attention high. He did a lot of press and even had a documentary crew follow him around.
2: — Through the years, we've gotten a fair amount of press, but we've never broken through to the consciousness of the American people in a significant way.
0: Here he is in that documentary, called Crude. It came out in 2009, and it painted a blistering portrait of the company's environmental record in Ecuador.
2: — This is about fighting hundreds of years of history you know, in Latin America, and it's about fighting one of the most powerful companies in the world with people who have literally no resources and are some of the most marginalized people on earth. So, you know, it's a completely unequal battle.
1: It was all part of this strategy, this um, getting the public sentiment and, you know, getting a documentary out there showing what was happening on the ground and, you know, why they thought Chevron was responsible was a big part towards swaying public opinion.
0: In 2011, Stephen and the plaintiffs scored a major win. A judge in Ecuador issued a massive verdict against the oil giant.
1: A judge in Ecuador ordered Chevron to pay $9.5 billion. The case involves the dumping of toxic wastewater by Texaco, which Chevron bought in 2001.
2: It is the largest damage award... From any environmental lawsuit, the judge says that will cover cleanup costs and restitution from oil drilling
1: contamination that happened near the headwaters of the Amazon River. The, San the final judge on the case, Judge Zambrano, issued a $9.5 billion verdict against Chevron. And he even said if Chevron doesn't apologize in a matter of, I think it was a few weeks, it'll be doubled. So then the verdict was doubled for a period of time. And so the verdict found Chevron was responsible and they had to pay this huge amount.
0: $9.5 billion, that is a massive judgment.
1: It's widely considered the one of the largest or the largest environmental judgments of its kind.
0: And has Chevron paid any of that money? No, not a penny. Coming up, Stephen finds himself in his own legal quagmire. — Chevron has always insisted that the $9.5 billion judgment was unfair. The company points to the liability waiver from Ecuador's government and to the actions of the plaintiff's lawyer, Stephen Donziger. So the company has thrown counterpunches against both. It's gone after Ecuador, and it's also gone after Stephen. First, Stephen. Two weeks before the Ecuadorian judge issued the $9.5 billion ruling, Chevron sued Stephen in a New York court— essentially alleging that much of the case was totally fraudulent. Part of Chevron's argument came from unaired footage from the documentary that had been cut out. Through a series of
1: crazy twists and turns, Chevron was able to get a U.S. court to order Joe Berlinger, the documentary filmmaker, to turn over 500 hours of outtakes that didn't make it into the final film. So they were able to see kind of everything that was filmed over, you know, these many weeks or months where Berlinger was following them around.
0: But while the film made Stephen look like a lawyer fighting for the truth and justice, the outtakes painted a different picture, a picture of a lawyer breaking all kinds of rules, like when he suggested people should make up the facts.
2: And the facts that we need don't always exist. That's another key point about, about <laughs> litigation. You have to get the right facts. And if they don't exist in an obvious way, you got to go figure out how to make them. Otherwise, you're going
0: to lose. Or when he said the court should be politically controlled.
2: We have concluded that we need to do more politically, to control the court, to pressure the court. We believe they make decisions based on who they fear the most, not based on what the laws should dictate.
0: Or when he talked about following a looser set of ethical rules in Ecuador.
2: I mean, this is just out of bounds, both in terms of judicial behavior and what what lawyers would do. But Ecuador, you know, there's almost no rules here. And this is how the game is played.
0: Chevron dug up even more dirt on Stephen, alleging he had helped a supposedly independent witness write their report that he tampered with evidence and pressured judges to rule in their favor. And in 2014, the U.S. judge overseeing the case, Judge Louis Kaplan, ruled in Chevron's favor and said that Stephen had acted unethically.
1: Judge Kaplan found in a nearly 500-page opinion that Donziger and his team did things like submitting false evidence, paying off a of court, appointed expert and and ghostwriting much of his opinion, promising $500,000 to a judge to rule in their favor. And he even found that they ghostwrote the ultimate opinion with the $9.5 billion judgment. They found evidence on computers of files from the plaintiffs that weren't in the public record anywhere that ended up verbatim in the final judgment.
0: Yesterday, we spoke with Stephen. He told me he denies the accusations and disagrees with the ruling. So over the course of your time in Ecuador, you have been accused of behaving improperly. How would you describe your tactics in Ecuador?
2: Completely appropriate, meaning consistent with the ethics of the legal profession. And everything we did was consistent with Ecuadorian law and procedure. Now, my short response to the accusation that I behaved inappropriately, which has been made by Chevron, and made by this U.S. federal judge is that I respectfully disagree and I, I reject that.
0: But some of the things that Judge Kaplan ruled that you had done in Ecuador, like promising $500,000 to a judge to rule in your favor, ghostwriting some of the judge's opinion, doing some of the ghostwriting for an outside independent witness I mean, th- these things sound, they don't sound like a normal legal process and a normal thing to do for a lawyer.
2: I'm glad you brought up that question, because my response to that is it didn't happen. And you're right. If that did happen, it would be entirely inappropriate. You know, what I'm trying to tell you is that those findings by Judge Kaplan are erroneous. They're wrong, they're flawed,
0: they're untrue. As for the documentary outtakes, Stephen says some of it was taken out of context, but he does regret parts of it.
2: That documentary film was shot in 2007, and You know, there were things I said that, frankly, I wish I hadn't said. You know, I was frustrated with Chevron's corruption, what we believe was their corruption of Ecuador's courts to slow down the trial process where my indigenous clients were dying
0: of cancer and other oil related diseases. It was infuriating. Stephen's persistence has also gotten him into trouble. One of the things Judge Kaplan ordered in his 2014 ruling was that Stephen had to give up his financial stake in the lawsuit.
1: The judge said that he couldn't profit from the judgment in any way, and, and that's been kind of open to some interpretation and, and further legal fighting. And Stephen Donziger had a 6.3%. Um, his contingency fee was 6.3% of whatever they collected. So, you know, if Chevron actually paid $9.5 billion, he would get 6.3% of
0: that. Which would be a lot of money.
1: I can't do math in my head, but <laughs> it would be
0: a lot of money. Chevron accused Stephen of trying to profit from the lawsuit anyway by going out and raising money to keep the case going. So the court ordered Stephen to turn over all of his electronic devices as evidence. When Stephen refused, the court eventually ordered a trial to determine if he should be held in criminal contempt of court. The new judge that's overseeing the criminal contempt of court case determined that Stephen was a flight risk, and so she put him under house arrest.
1: And because of COVID, you know, what could have been just a couple months under house arrest has continually turned into multiple, multiple delays, and it's now been almost two years that he's been under house arrest in Upper West Side of Manhattan.
0: But over time, Stephen has developed a lot of supporters.
1: Stephen Donziger is still largely hailed in in some circles as a hero and, and a martyr and someone who's fought so long for this cause and is being beat up by this big bad oil company. And he continues to get tremendous support
0: even some celebrities have joined his cause, like Pink Floyd frontman Roger Waters and the actor Alec Baldwin, who spoke out at a Chevron shareholder meeting last year.
2: Chevron now has more than $9.5 billion in liability, ignores human suffering, and uses shareholder money to personally attack the Ecuadorian's attorney, Stephen Donziger.
1: He has a group of Nobel laureates who've weighed in in his favor. He recently got several congresspeople to weigh in for him.
0: There was even a rally in December outside his Upper West Side apartment. Above a giant banner that said, SOS, Free Steven, he hung out his window and greeted supporters with a bullhorn.
2: Thank you so much, Ron. Can people hear me? Yeah! Yeah.
0: While Chevron scored a major victory against Steven, it was still fighting its case against Ecuador. Because even though a judge in New York ruled that the $9.5 billion order was a fraud— that didn't mean it just got invalidated in Ecuador.
1: As you can imagine, it's a little hard for a government to just wipe out a judgment. You know, imagine in the U.S., if the president was told, you need to get rid of this court judgment, obviously hear that, you know, <laughs> that would be very difficult to do. And so Ecuador has said, hey, we can't just wipe out a court judgment. And so they've kind of been hemming and hawing and not, in Chevron's view, abiding by this judgment.
0: Chevron so far has avoided paying any of the money because it doesn't have any operations in Ecuador. So the plaintiffs have been going to other countries around the world where Chevron does have operations, hoping the courts in those countries will help them collect.
1: Because Chevron has refused to pay and because they no longer have operations in Ecuador, there's no real way for the Ecuadorians to collect that money. If they had, say, a big oil tanker somewhere, they could you know, seize that and say, unless you pay this 9500000000 billion, we're going to take this oil tanker. But because they have nothing there... The plaintiffs have had to go to countries around the world where they do have assets and try to say, hey, here's this Ecuadorian judgment. Country X, they've done this in Canada, and Argentina, and Brazil, they've said, hey, will you try to enforce it and do that by, um, you know, seizing assets or, or making Chevron pay in this country? And so far, those have all not succeeded as well.
0: In 2018, Chevron scored another victory when an international arbitration tribunal based in The Hague ruled in its favor. It said that Ecuador should invalidate the judgment, but Ecuador hasn't done that. So the company started looking for other ways to put pressure on the Ecuadorian government.
1: Chevron has turned to the U.S. trade system to try to stifle Ecuador. So there's a system that the U.S. trade representative in Washington has various countries that are allowed duty-free status because they're developing countries, they're not as rich as we are, and so it's a way to kind of try to boost the economies in other countries. And so Chevron has fought for years to have Ecuador's status under this revoked.
0: Last year, Chevron even went after the tax-free status of Ecuadorian roses that the country was trying to export to the United States.
1: Chevron says Ecuador isn't holding up its end of international bargains and international arbitration agreements, and so we don't think they should be allowed to have these roses come in duty-free. So, you know, even though roses have nothing to do with with oil pollution, uh, you know, they've kind of done that as well.
0: Chevron officials say they've punched back so hard for so long because, for them, it's become about more than just the money. They say it's about fairness. Ecuador said they were cleared of liability in the 1990s, and a judge found fraud in the litigation. Why won't Chevron just give it up?
1: Yeah, so for them... It's a matter of principle. I spent months looking into this and speaking with people on all sides of it. And they said it's not about money. Their former general counsel told me this was not something where they said, oh, it'll cost too much to pay for this lawsuit to pay the people of Ecuador. We don't want to do that. It was a principle thing. They said we're not responsible for this. Bad things have happened in the course of this case that have been fraudulent. And therefore, even more so, we don't think we're responsible. They just say we should not have to pay for this case. And so therefore, we're going to keep fighting. You know, regardless of who's responsible, what's definitely clear is that no one's really talking anymore about the people of the Amazon and um, you know, what their living situation is and whether there's something that could be done to improve it.
0: I asked Stephen what he thought about that. Do you think that your continued involvement in the case is detrimental to the people who are in Ecuador?
2: That's a really interesting question that I've thought about a lot. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, Look, I've always said if I didn't exist, Chevron would have to invent me because like I'm the foil. Like they don't want people thinking about the pollution they cause in Ecuador. They want people thinking about the lawyer. So in a way they put me in a situation by attacking me for 10 years where I have to defend myself. Um, And I also, you know, have a huge amount of skill and institutional knowledge that I think benefits my clients, and they want me to continue with their lawyer. And the fact that Chevron has figured out a way to deprive them of their choice of a lawyer, I think is very telling about my effectiveness, frankly.
0: Chevron also says that it's just defending itself. The company told Sarah in a written statement that, quote, "...the perpetrators of the fraud refuse to acknowledge the court and arbitration findings, and instead continue to spew falsehoods and threats against Chevron." leaving us no choice but to defend ourselves.
1: You know, while reporting this, everyone I talked to was all about Chevron versus Donziger and Chevron versus Donziger. And, uh, you know, really the conversation these days is not about the people in the Amazon. And it seems, from what I understand, that there definitely is some pollution down there.
0: Stephen's criminal contempt of court trial starts on Monday. That's all for today, Thursday, May 6th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and the Wall Street Journal. If you like the show, follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We're out every weekday afternoon. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.